Well, it's a joy to see all of you tonight, both in-house and live streaming. So we're beginning the service tonight. This is our midweek service, of course, and we trust this will be a time of getting your batteries recharged. We trust this will be a time of encouragement, a time of blessing. Uh, Pastor Pelletier has worked hard, and the outlines are available for you online and at your places here uh, as we're seated together. How are you all doing tonight? It's good to see you all, and uh, I trust in your heart there's a song, because the first song we'll sing tonight is In My Heart, There Rings a Melody. God puts a song in our hearts. And it doesn't matter whether we have an operatic voice or a voice that makes the angels weep. Uh, uh, there's a song in our hearts. When you know the Lord, there's joy. There's joy. And even amidst sorrow and struggles, there is joy. In my heart, there rings a melody. All right, so we're going back into our study tonight of uh, triumphing over sinful fear. Does anybody remember the three kinds of fear that John Flavel talks about? All right. You can speak. It's okay. I'll repeat what you said so that people who are, can't hear on the, on the uh, live stream can hear. If, if, if you're really good at cheating, you can find it right on the front page of the notes. It's really easy. So what's the first one? Natural fear. Natural fear. That's the fear. Natural fear is the fear that is just the natural result of the fall of man. We fell into sin. There was no fear until there was sin. And because we sinned, we know we deserve judgment. And uh, God came into the Garden of Eden to talk to Adam and Eve, and they went a-hiding. And God wanted to love on them, but they said, no, we're guilty, we've got to hide. And that's what they did. That's natural fear. And we all live knowing that we deserve judgment because of sin. All right, then there is the second kind. What is that? Sinful fear. And that's kind of what our focus has been the last couple of lessons on what causes it. And, and we're going to get into that. But sinful fear is basically when we say... I don't want to turn to God. I want to try to figure this out by myself. And, and I still live in fear because I've made a bad choice and I'm not running to God to get the help. And so we basically, that's, that's the idea behind sinful fear. And then the third kind of fear, what is that? I, I see your lips moving. I don't hear anything coming out. What is it? Religious fear. Okay, maybe I'm deaf. That's what it is. Religious fear, or the fear of God, that's what we're talking about. That's where, that's where we say, I know God is great, I know God is powerful, I'm going to submit to Him, and because I'm going to run to Him instead of from Him, He's going to put His loving arms around me and protect me and guide me. And uh, that is where we know that God is going to establish everything that is right and destroy everything that is wrong. That's one of Pastor's famous uh, definitions of the fear of the Lord. And God is in control and we run to Him. Now, we're getting into now this idea of, of the causes for sinful fear. If you have, have Flavel's book, uh, it's chapter 4, but we're turning it into about three lessons, okay? Just too much to get into one lesson. But uh, we, we talked last week about the first cause, and that is ignorance. We don't know who God is. We don't know who people are. We don't even know who we are. The idea is we look at God and we say, He's just terrifying, I was talking to somebody yesterday, I think it was, and they were telling me that they were brought up with the idea that if, if your father stepped into the room, you were going to get it, and you were in big trouble. And because he had that image of God, uh, image of his father, that his father was, a, was somebody who was going to out to hurt him, in his mind, he thought that's who God was. 
And we have sometimes the wrong image of who God is. God's a loving Father who wants to care for us and protect us. Yes, He does discipline us, but He does so in love. So we have to know who God is. We've got to know who God is. He's good. He always has our best interest at heart. And He's strong enough to overcome anything that's evil. All right? And so that's the first thing that we're ignorant of, of who God is. And we're ignorant of other people. And we tend to elevate other people and we raise them up in our minds and they think, we think they're so much smarter and so much more beautiful and so much more handsome and much more talented. I know you all are thinking about me. But uh, we, we look at these other people and, and we think that, uh, think that they're so much better and so I'm intimidated by them. And we live under this peer pressure that holds us back from accomplishing what God wants us to do. And that, that we're ignorant of who we are. And we have to understand, we are beloved of God. First uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see him just as he is. Again, we don't get proud about that. We're children of God. That's all because of God's grace in our lives. He provided salvation for us. He provided rescue from our sin, which is what we needed, because we're sinners deserving of of damnation and hell. That's what we're deserving of. But God in his grace, Jesus Christ, took our place and gave us that gift of salvation and entered us into and adopted us into his family, and we have become children of God. And, and we don't have to be fearful because we know who we are. God's children. He loves us. You know, if, you've, if you're a parent, you know you love your children. And, and you may sometimes have to get on them because they're doing the wrong thing. I know that never has happened to Seth. But every once in a while, you have to get on a kid because he disobeys. But you still love them, right? And, uh, and that's the way God is with us. He loves us and we're his. And so he's going to take care of us. We're a child of God. And we don't have to, because we're children of God, we, we know that one day, we don't have to be intimidated at all, God is one day going to make us rulers over angels. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 says, Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So as a child of God, the potential for us to serve God and accomplish God's will is great, because He will enable us to do that. So we surrender to His will and then he uses us in ways we never could have imagined. That's not on us. That's just because God was good to us and he chose to use us. Wonderful thing. Tertullian said, are you afraid of man, Christian? When devils are afraid of you, the world ought to fear you, seeing as you will judge it. All right, then sometimes we're ignorant about the truth of our circumstances. We look at where we are in life and we go, all these things are against us. You remember, that's the way... Um, that's the way um, Jacob felt when he found out about what happened with his sons. Uh, Joseph had been, been sold off into slavery and his older brothers had brought the, brought the garment back and said that he is dead. But jo- jo- Jacob said, all these things are against me. That has to do with a guilty conscience. We'll get to that a little bit later. But sometimes I think we feel like all the circumstances of life are, of life are against us. And we need to do like that bird on page four in your notes that to be able to sing in the middle of our trials, right? We sing because we know that the Lord is going to help us through. We sing because we're free in the Lord. Our freedom is found in him. That's exactly what Paul and Silas did in Acts chapter 16. 
They were put in jail like that bird in the cage. And what did they do? Instead of pouting and, and sucking their thumbs and pitching a fit, uh, they, they sang praises to the Lord. And everyone heard them and God was glorified. And then he sent an earthquake. I don't know if their singing was bad or what. But there was an earthquake that came and they were delivered. And, uh, and they were able to have a, a wonderful testimony. Because... They began to understand their circumstances. They didn't live under their circumstances. They understood that God was in control of their circumstances. And instead of it being a difficulty, it was an opportunity. Listen, I can't tell you how many people I've run into as Christians, uh, specifically preachers and missionaries, who've gone through difficult times. I know in my own life we've gone through difficult times. But when you trust the Lord during those difficult times, you find out that he gives you the grace that you need to get through it. And I know there have been times I've gone through some hard times and I've said, boy, I don't ever want to go through that again. But I'm sure thankful I did because I learned things about God in those circumstances that I never would have learned any other time. And so we, we, we have to understand God is in control of our circumstances. And so when we see things that look frightening around us, COVID or whatever, a job loss, or a rebellious child, whatever it is we're going through, we go through those difficulties. What is God teaching me through this? What, has God ha- what does God have for me in this? And try to find out what that is. So we're ignorant that God is in, war- in control. We know who God is. We know who other people are. We know who we are. And we know that God's in charge of our circumstances. So that's the first cause of guilt, that ignorance. We just, it's not stupidity. It's just we didn't know. We didn't know. And, uh, and so now we know. And so uh, we know the more we grow in the Lord, and then we can have more confidence in the Lord. Secondly, we talked about guilt, about how we feel like there's always somebody looking over our shoulders. We're living without God's forgiveness, and we, we're just waiting to get caught. The other shoe's going to drop, and we're going to be in trouble, right? Uh, John Flavel said, A servant of sin is necessarily a slave of fear. Those who commit evil must expect evil. We talked about Adam and Eve in the garden. God came in to be a blessing to them. He wanted to enjoy a time with them in Genesis chapter 3. And when he walked into the garden, he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam's hiding. And, and God said, where are you? And Adam said, I knew I had sinned, and so I was hiding from you. That's guilt. That's what, that's what guilt is. Right? Some of you have got dogs, and you know when they've done something wrong, they go hide in a corner someplace, don't they? Right? Children do the same thing. I didn't do it. I don't want to be found. But we all have that, that we need to look out for. Guilty people live in fear, looking over their shoulders, running from the consequences of their sin, while innocent people or forgiven people have no reason to be fear, fearful. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing. They just think somebody is. But the righteous are bold as a lion. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power and love and discipline or sound judgment or a sound mind. We can have confidence when we know that we are innocent. We've had our sins forgiven, and uh, the Lord has forgiven us. He took care of all of our sins on the cross as a believer, and we don't have to run around living in guilt. Now, as a believer, we do get out of fellowship with the Lord when we sin, right? 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us, right? But verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 
and we've got a clean slate, and we can go back to heaven. Fellowship and ministering and serving in his cause. Guilt exaggerates the consequences, right? Um, remember Cain killed his brother, and uh, God came to him and said he was going to punish him. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain says to God, My punishment is too great to bear. Uh, behold, you have driven me away this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Everybody's out to get me now. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. That's sinful fear. Instead of going to the Lord and saying, forgive me, restore me, I am repenting, I want to change. He just lived with his guilt, and he went away from the presence of the Lord rather than going to the Lord, okay? And again, I'm reviewing here, but I just want to hit these things because it's important. Um, guilt exaggerates consequences. Everybody's going to kill me. That's the way Cain felt. Guilt interprets life's circumstances in the worst possible light. I mentioned that about Jacob being a bad father, four women that he's had children with, and, uh, and, and uh, he, loved, he, he favors the, the youngest one, and all the brothers gang up on the youngest one, and they, they send Joseph into the pit, and then they sell him off into slavery, bring that garment back, and, and Jacob's response is, all these things are against me. And I think that's a lot because he knew he'd been a bad dad, a lousy husband, and we know all of his life he'd been a schemer and a deceiver, and all these things are catching up with him, right? And uh, all these things are against me. Then we go on to page six in the notes if you want to follow along there. Guilt imagines fear and terror where there's no reason for it. Remember last week we talked about Pashur, the, uh, the priest who lived in the days of Jeremiah the prophet, and he, had, he didn't like Jeremiah's message, and so he took Jeremiah, put him in the stocks, and he beat him. And then the next, when, he, when Jeremiah got out, God told Jeremiah to change that guy's name, Pashur, from Pashur to Magor Misabib, which means, when you least expect it, expect it. It's pretty much what it means. The terror is always going to be around you. Terror on every side. You're going to face judgment. And the idea was that one day... Israel or Judah was going to go into captivity and Magor Misabib, formerly Pashur, was going to be part of that and he's going to face the judgment of God. And he never knew when it was coming. And so he was always expecting the terror of the Lord to come down on him. And then you contrast that in the middle of page six with David's sin. And we know David had sinned. Uh, he, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then she, he had his, her, her uh, husband killed in a battle. But David had the right response to sin. Instead of worried about God getting him or, or his guilt catching up with him, he dealt with his guilt. And we, again, we go back to the idea of going to God instead of running from God. When we've done something wrong, we go to God. We don't run away from God. We go to God as David did in Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, I hid from God. I didn't want him to know about it. I didn't want anybody else to know about it. I was trying to get away with it. My body wasted away through the groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. I felt this guilt constantly. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And then verse 5 says, I acknowledged my sin. That's what confession is. Saying the same thing about sin 
that God says. It's sin. It's wrong. I didn't just flip, uh, uh, flub up. I didn't just, didn't just goof. I sinned. And say what it is. Call it adultery. Call it lying. Call it hatred. Call it bitterness. Whatever it is. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I didn't run from God. I ran to God. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And the result, you forgave the guilt of my sin. What a blessed thing it is to know that your sins are forgiven. And your conscience can be clear and you can get back in fellowship with God. Now that's kind of where we stopped last week because we ran out of time. And so there's something else that I wanted to deal with that I didn't get to. And it's kind of on the next page. When you get into page 7, you know, you say, but I know some people who are, they've never done anything, they've really been pretty innocent people. They've tried to have, keep short sin debts. They've tried to take care of those things, but they, they always, they're always concerned that they're, that they're not good enough for God. They're always feeling guilty. They're always, you know, we all have different personalities, and there's some people who are just very, 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 very sensitive. Then there are other people like me who really aren't all that sensitive. I wish I was more sensitive. My wife is very, very, very sensitive. If she goes to visit you in the hospital, she's going to cry with you. If I go in to visit you in the hospital, I'm going to say, what's the matter with you? Get up. No, I won't do that, but I'm going to approach it a little differently than she would because of our personalities. And some people walk around with this guilty conscience all the time. They have to, you have to grasp the concept of forgiveness. You have to grasp the concept of God's love for you. You have to understand these things. And that doesn't happen lightly. It doesn't happen easily. And then there's some people who they, they actually do get ill, sick. Uh, I, I, I know of a pastor friend right now who's, who's nursing his, his father-in-law. His father-in-law had been a pastor all of his life, and now he's got Alzheimer's. And, uh, and he's not being who he is. He's not normal. He's not, he's not, he's not like he normally would have been. And, and in order to keep him cheered up, they keep a set of headphones on him, and they play Christian music, and he sings off-key all the time terribly around the house. But that music helps him to keep his mind going where it ought to be going, and it encourages him in that way. Whatever it is, if you're having, having difficulties with your thinking, you ask God to help you and, and, and seek a way to get into God's Word. Seek a way for good, solid Christian music. The kind of music that lifts you up, doesn't just beat you up, you know. It lifts your spirit, and uh, that will help you some. So there's, there's some that live in this dread, uh, and, and they live in fear. Though they, they haven't done anything wrong, they just, just feel that way. It's personality-driven. It could be an actual sickness of the mind. And, uh, and we have to pray for those people, and we have to encourage those people. Then there's the other people on the bottom of page 7. and They're terrible. They're awful people. They're mean. Uh, they're, 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 they're brazen in their sin, and they do whatever they want, and they never feel any guilt for anything that they do. I haven't done anything wrong. I, can't, I'm, I, I, I know one person who, who keeps falling into sin, and, and they say, well, well, God hadn't struck me dead yet. I'm going, oh... You are living in a dangerous place, daring God to strike you down. You need to surrender to the Lord. But there are some people uh, that uh, they, they have seared their conscience to the point that they don't feel any guilt. They used to, but they don't anymore. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says, The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, 
and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. You can sear your conscience or you can ask God to give you a soft one. If you sear your conscience, eventually you're going to face the judgment of God. It happens. You're not going to get away without it. Be sure your sin will find you out. You need to ask God for a soft conscience, not a seared conscience. And if you see someone who's there, you need to try to aim them in that way. But the truth of the matter is you really can't help somebody who's chosen to live that way. You just can't. And that's when you have to kind of separate away from them and say, I'm not going to go down that path with them. Because I don't want to be there when the lightning strikes. And just pray that God turns them around because he's the only one who can. All right, so we've dealt with a couple of things. We've dealt with ignorance. We've dealt with guilt. Now let's go on to number three, which is the next one. Unbelief. What's another cause for sinful fear? Unbelief. John Flavel says the weaker the faith, the greater the fear. Unbelief generates fear, and fear strengthens unbelief. If you're afraid, you just it's hard to believe because you're living in fear. You're living in fear. You've got to step away from that and go into trusting the Lord. Whenever I think of people like this, they unbelief. Jesus actually ran into this with his disciples. You see the picture on page 8. Jesus and the disciples got into the ship in uh, Mark chapter 4, and they headed across the, the Sea of Galilee, and then they got into the middle of it. Jesus is in the back of the boat, got his head down on a pillow. He's out. He's tired. He's like Pastor Kelly probably sleeping back there behind the curtain right now. Um, He's he, he just gone, absolutely gone. And, and the boat's bouncing up and down, water's coming over him. The disciples are looking at him and saying, how in the world is he sleeping through this thing? Well, let's read what it says. On that day, Mark chapter 4, verse 35, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Ever been in a boat like that? That's, that's, not, that's not exciting. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We're going to drown out here. And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. It was water skiing weather then, you know, ready to go. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? You know, sometimes when we get into that place where we just refuse to trust God, the best thing we can do is just rebuke him. Rebuke. That doesn't mean you hate him. If you see somebody who's living in fear and you know it's because they just don't believe the promises of God, say, listen. You need to stop living in fear, and you need to start just trusting God. Just trust the Lord. Why are you afraid Do you still have no faith? Verse 41 says, The disciples became very afraid and said to one, one to another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Listen, if God's called you to do something, you don't have to be afraid. He's called you to it. Where God guides, he provides. Where he leads, he feeds. If he wants you to accomplish his will, he's going to make it happen somehow. So keep going until he puts the brakes up. And just live in faith and accomplish what he wants you to do. Well, that's exactly what we need to do with this. Now, unbelief 
letter A, makes God seem invisible. Do you think that the disciples were thinking, we have God in the boat when that storm was bouncing up and down, when they were getting soaking wet and the boat was filling full of water? Well, we have God in the boat. We have nothing to worry about. That's not what they were thinking. At that, mo- that point, they didn't really believe who Jesus was. At that point, they had their mind on waves instead of the Savior. And that's what happens. We get our eyes off of the we got to get our eyes off of God and his call on our life, and we get our eyes on the troubles around us, and then we stop having faith, and God seems invisible. Flavel says, the person who is not thoroughly persuaded that he stands upon firm ground, the firm ground of the word of God, will be afraid to stand his ground. If you don't believe God's promises, you're never really going to accomplish anything for him. So it's important that you do trust God. Now imagine, again, and we're going down to page 9 now in the notes if you're following along. Moses has given this responsibility. He Remember, he grew up in Pharaoh's household. He grew up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then God puts him in a position where he is sent back to talk to Pharaoh. In their eyes, Pharaoh was God in Egypt. He was, he was a God. He was a sun God. He was everything rose and, and, and fell based upon what Pharaoh said. And God said, Moses, go in there and tell Pharaoh to let all those, all those Hebrew slaves go. You think that would have been terrifying? Yeah, it'd be like going over to the President of the United States saying, whatever, I'm not going to get into that, okay? All right, imagine Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, by faith, this is how Moses got his strength. This is where Moses got his strength. It wasn't in him. He was trusting God, Right? By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, how? As seeing him who is unseen. You see, if, if Jesus walked in this room right now, I don't know that he would stand out, but we would have to believe that he was God, because he was. Remember, Jesus walked along the Sea of Galilee. He walked up and down the roads of Damascus with the disciples. He had dirty feet like the rest of them. He slept in, a, in, a, in, this, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it was easy for them to forget who he was. But when, they, when we believe who Jesus is, the Son of God, God himself, let's keep our eyes on him and by faith accomplish what God's called us to do. Okay? That takes away some fear. God called me to do this. I'm going to get it done. Unbelief, letter B, severs our faith in God's promises. When we face frightening times, we have a choice to make. Am I going to believe God's word? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And we say... Everyone? That one? He's kind of big and scary. I don't know if I can do this or not. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. By faith you do what God called you to do, right? All these things. Only those who step out in faith experience the presence of God. Only those who trust God can understand that he is an impenetrable refuge from life's storms. See that picture in the middle of page 9? 
the hand of God protecting that man in the storm, right? Answer me quickly, O Lord, Psalm 143, verse 7. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will become like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. I have faith. Teach me the way in which I should walk. For to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. So when you get frightened and you get afraid, go to God in prayer and say, Lord, I need you, I trust you, I want you to protect me. And you will be amazed at how the Spirit of God ministers to your heart and helps you go keep going. It just happens. Unbelief severs our faith in God's promises. We've got to choose to restore, choose to, to by faith go back to Him. Unbelief leaves us unprepared for suffering. Faith includes believing God when He says that trouble is coming. We should prepare for it. Listen, let me tell you, Jesus told us trouble's coming, right? In this world you shall have... Yeah, marshmallows and s'mores and and feather beds and and all you know, all you know Kool Aid and whatever else nice stuff you want. That's not what he said. He said, "In this world, you will have tribulation." Right? Noah, everybody around him is is doing evil. Everybody around him is is living in sin. God described the world in that day as saying it's worse than it's ever been. I've never seen anything like this. Boy, that sounds like San Francisco, right? But then Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and God told Noah to do a job, build that ark. It had never rained. Build a boat. What? Build a boat in the desert. No, I'm not going to say, God, are you crazy? But I'm sure that was going through his mind. But instead, he just said, okay, God, you said suffering's coming. You said trouble's coming. I will, by faith, do what you told me to do to prepare for that day. Now, how do we build an ark for our day? Get your Bible. Get your Bible out. Stay in this thing. Read it. Study it. Listen to good Christian music. Be faithful to church. If you can't make it to church, do like the people who are on the live stream right now. Get to that anyway. Get something from God's Word that will give you what you need to prepare for troubles. You need it. You need it. Run to God, not run from God. Noah understood that God would have to punish the wickedness of man in his day. He knew the trouble was coming, so he prepared. Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is in accordance to, which is according to faith. Again, we need to be ready because trouble's coming. We know politically trouble's coming. We know that, that, that socially trouble is coming to Christians, right? If we stand by God's word, there's going to be people who don't like the way we stand, right? So what do we do? We live by faith and we keep doing what God's called us to do. John chapter 15 on page 10, verses 18 to 21. If the world hates you, Jesus said this, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus, that's a capital M right there, right? They will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So when the world persecutes us, they're really not just against us. They're against everything God and his word has said. They're just rejecting it. And be prepared because of judgment, because not the judgment, but the, the persecution will follow that. You'll be laughed at. You'll be mocked. You know, we need to be ready. We may go to jail for some of the things we stand for. Whatever it is, we stand for truth because we believe and we trust God that he's going to take care of us, right? We are not of this world. This world is not our home. We are just passing through. And we need to let our light shine as light, as bright as it can as long as we're here, right? That's how we keep going. John 16, verse 33. These things have I spoken to you, Jesus said, so that in me ye may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Now on page 10 you have the testimony there of a Puritan man named John Bradford. I don't know much about him, but he was a preacher of the gospel and he was living in those days back in the 1500s. And he was imprisoned in England for his faith. Queen Mary I was a Roman Catholic and she persecuted anyone who was not of the Catholic persuasion. You've heard of the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition. Well, this is something that happened in England instead of Spain. And uh, they were trying to stop all preaching of anything other than the Roman Catholic doctrine. And so he ended up in jail. And at that point, uh, it was all prepared and they were going to burn him at the stake the next day. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that does, doesn't sound like much fun to me. I just can't imagine what that would be like. Strapped to a bundle of wood and have somebody pour some kind of inflammatory liquid on it and then light that thing on fire and me strapped to it and can't get away. That doesn't sound like fun at all. But John Bradford recognized that there was more to life than this life. And whatever struggles we go through for the cause of Christ in this life are worth it because there is another life. On the night before his execution, you can see in the middle paragraph there on page 10, that blue box. On the night before his execution, the jailer's wife came running into John Bradford's chamber with news that he that would have terrified most men. Oh, Mr. Bradford, I bring you heavy tidings. Tomorrow you will be burned. He declared, Lord, I thank thee. I've waited for this a long time. It's not terrible to me. God, make me worthy of such a mercy. Listen, because Bradford knew that when he closed his eyes in death on this side, he's going to open them wide in the presence of the Lord. And when we know that that is coming, death doesn't have as much of a sting. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Right? The gospel overcomes all of that. That's why we need to proclaim the gospel to people. They need to know that. It takes the sting of death away and prepares us for heaven and the presence of the Lord. What a blessing that is. Now, I hope we don't have to go that way. But I think Pastor and I both said this. God's got to get us to heaven somehow, right? So let him take you. 
the way he wants you to go and glorify him as you go. On the back page of the notes, I've given you a link to a sermon that my brother Paul preached in my church in New England. It's called Living in the Light of Dying. He had been diagnosed after eight years of cancer, and they finally said, we can't lick this, it's going to get you, and your time is short. And he preaches about how that changes your whole life and your whole thinking when you realize this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, and that's what I'm looking for. I think old Lester Roloff used to say, I'm not looking for the undertaker, but I'm looking for the upper taker. I can't wait to get up there with him. Right? Now, unbelief leaves our best interests in our own hands. Let's move on from there. Instead of trusting God, we say, I can handle this. I can do this. On the bottom of page 10, you see that guy, he's hang, sitting on the top of a muscular bull and he's hanging on by the horns and saying, I think I can control this. Yeah, right. Yeah, he's going to get bucked off pretty good. We think we got our lives under control. We do not. You're not in control of your life. I'm not in control of my life. This is God's business. We need to just get in line with what God wants for us, right? Stop trying to be a control freak and start trusting your Lord. It's foolish to grab a bull by the horns thinking you can control it. It's foolish for you to grab the, bull, the horns of your life and think you can control that. John Flavel says believers have this advantage. They've committed by faith all that is precious and value to them into God's hand. Here's my life. I lay it on the altar. Do with it what you will, Lord. That's what we need to do. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, for this is your reasonable service. Because God's going to do a better, life, better job with your life than you could ever do. Right? Do not be afraid of surrendering to the will of God. He made you to do that. And embrace it. First Peter chapter 4 verse 19 and page 11. Those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Proverbs 16, 3, commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Do not trust yourself. Trust God. Let's hit quickly number four, confusion. Confusion. Misunderstanding life's trials. You see all those jumbled up wires there, or strings or whatever they are? going across the page. God's the only one who can straighten out the confusion in your life. You, put, you let him take care of it. He, he can straighten out whatever mess you've made of it already by surrendering to him. There are times in our lives when, it, light, when, it, when it's a tangled mess, we don't understand that anything good can come of it. And we need to trust the Lord. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 2, verses three, two, nine, verses two and 3. It's the same for all. There's one fate for the righteous and for the wicked. For the good, for the clean, for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity, 
is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. This is Solomon talking logically and confused about life. It looks like all the good people get treated the same way as the bad people. That doesn't seem right. Well, wait a minute. It's not over, right? Life's not over. Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem, and speak against the sanctuaries, and prophesy against the land of Israel, and say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm against you, and I will draw my sword out of its sheath, and cut off from you the righteous and the wicked. Because I will cut off from you the righteous and the wicked, therefore my sword will go forth from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. Thus all flesh will know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath. It will not return to its sheath again. Again, this doesn't seem right. Why would God treat the righteous and the wicked the same way? Psalms chapter 79, verse 1. O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens. Boy, that's a gruesome thought. The flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem. There is no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. Again, that doesn't seem very good. Good people and bad people get treated the same. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, down to verse 13. How long, O Lord? We've got to move here quickly. Will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry to you. Violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than they? And you're going, boy, this just doesn't seem like God is doing the right thing. Sometimes we feel that way. And you get to Psalm 73. And I like this psalm. And I, for the sake of time, let me just synopsize it. He says, I, David says, I look and I saw all these things about the wicked. And they were getting treated better than the righteous. And that didn't seem right. It didn't seem right. It didn't seem right. And he said, my eyes, uh, verse 16, when I pondered to understand that it was troublesome in my sight. Verse 17, until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Now listen, in this life, sometimes it does look like the wicked are winning. In this life. But there's more than this life. You remember the rich man and Lazarus? In his day, he fared sumptuously every day and feasts and parties and all this stuff, but he never thought of God. Lazarus the beggar sits at his doorposts and begs for food, and the rich man throws him some crumbs once in a while. And the rich man died and lived in luxury the rest of eternity. No. That rich man is still in hell. And Jesus told us about it 2,000 years ago. And 2,000 years from now, he'll still be in hell. And 2,000 years from then, he'll, for all of eternity, he'll be in hell. And Lazarus, because he trusted in the Lord, is living in the presence of God. We'll come back to this. We'll come back to this. Don't let 
your present circumstances, get you get your eyes off of God. Keep them where they need to be. Stay in the book. Live by the word. Trust in the God of the book.